Welcome to Reading Between the Lines, the People's Friends story podcast in association with the Odd Fellows. Each episode, a few of us from the Friend team, along with some special guests, will delve into our archives to find a story to read, and then we'll all sit down for a wee chat about it. Make yourself a cup of tea, pull up a chair, and come join us. The story you're about to hear is The McPeever Wrangles, The Burglar, written by A.P. MacDonald and first published in 1906. We've met the McPeevers a couple of times so far in Reading Between the Lines, and just like in those episodes, this story will be read for you by friend production editor Judy Struth. But before Judy steps up to the mic, I wanted to say one wee thing. The chat that follows Judy's reading, well, you were never really meant to hear it. This was our pilot. We recorded it just as a wee test for the team. And because we didn't have our nice shiny microphones then, the audio quality is a bit rough. It was only ever intended to be for our ears. But, as you'll hear towards the end of the team chat, something happens that, well, it surprised and delighted us. And we think it'll surprise and delight you too. And so we hope you'll forgive the rough quality of the audio that follows Judy's reading and agree that it was worth sharing with you all the same. But first, here is Judy, with The McPeever Wrangles the Burglar, written by A.P. MacDonald. Mrs. McPeever popped up in bed like a Jill in the box and strained her shell-like ears, listening for the next noise. Burglarious noises always run in series. During the two and twenty years of her reign of terror as a married woman, she had never previously heard a noise of this sort at this time of night. False alarms and mysterious sounds frequently a genuine burglar alarm with a classified sound, never. With true womanly instinct, she recognised it now indisputably. The kitchen window downstairs was being gently raised. McPeever, she whispered hoarsely. A glance at the recumbent McPeever told her that he slept. Strange but true. He had been wide awake the very minute before. Colin McPeever, will you wake up? She insisted sibilantly. It was as near a scream as a whisper could get, but McPeever remained as irresponsive as bail to his bawling priests. At this moment, Mrs McPeever heard the next sound that of a man stealthily creeping in at the open window, and she shook McPeever till the bed rattled. As a result, McPeever emitted a long, drawn-out, peaceful snore. Preserve us all! He's fair sunk into a coma, she groaned distractedly, and by way of putting a period to this state of suspended animation. She seized him by his luxuriant hair and massive forearm and simply made a human roly-poly of him. It being impossible under these conditions for McPeever, who had heard and felt everything, to feign the sleep of innocence any longer, he officially awoke. What is it, Jean? 
he inquired, rubbing his eyes with the colourable air of a second Rip Van Winkle. It's burglars in the hoose, you sleepy heed, was Jean's respectful response. We're all going to be murdered in our beds. Who I wish Jeemsy was here. Jeemsy, whose attendance at the function was so earnestly desired, was their eldest son. Two hours ago, unfortunately, he had left their house in the Dumbarton Road, Partick, to catch the last train for Edinburgh. Were you wanting Jeems to be added to the list of victims, like? demanded MacPeever scathingly. No, you unfeeling wretch! But I would then hear the assurance that there was a man in the hoose. The thrust missed fire, to use the mixed metaphor of a warlike lady novelist. I thought you woke me for the express purpose of giving me the assurance that there was a man in the hoose. Thus retaliated MacPeever with subtle density. And you're feared to gang doon't him, I suppose. I dinna ken whoever anybody believed in you when you volunteered for the front at the time of the Boer War. Nay, doot you were relying on the age limit, and you're being a married man for your rejection. This stirred MacPeever up somewhat. As a captain in the Partick Rifles, he had a reputation for reckless courage to maintain. Crawling disgustedly out of bed, he tightened the waistband of his pyjamas and set about making reluctant preparations for death or glory, or perchance a pleasing blend of both. It would be an easy matter, he grumbled, to gang to the front in broad daylight, with your uniform on and your tour-sword drawn and the pipes playing and an admiring populace cheering you to the echo. But to gang slinking down stairs in the deed of nicht, we a poker and pyjamas, and the solitary pelican of the female in curling pins reviling you while you're hurrying to your death. It's a different thing altogether. I didn't see muckle hurrying myself, satirised Mrs MacPeever, though you'll maybe get your death a cold if you dally about any longer. MacPeever, be it explained, was selecting the poker from amongst the other fire irons, with the deliberation of David choosing his five smooth stones from the brook. I'm thinking this poker'll no stand muckle chance against a revolver, he pondered disparagingly. Aloud, too, in the hope that the burglar would hear his voice and flee dismayed. He then tried to sheathe the polished steel in his waistband, but it promptly slid down his leg to the floor, causing him to shudder at its icy progress. A weapon for close quarters, he continued didactically, ranks and military acceptance far below a weapon for long range. The closer the quarters, the further away you'll stay for them, it would seem, broke in Mrs MacPeever. And while you're standing havering there, the villain'll be marking a while with my silver teapot, the very finest present I got to console me for marrying a hen-herted scarecrow. Hen-pecked, I've heard, and I'm willing to admit. The neighbours say you're measured in that respect, good wife. A scarecrow? 
sometimes. Like the new. Napoleon himself couldn't look dignified in a suit of old torn pyjamas. But hen herted, no. I never retired for anything except the grocery business yet, and I'm no going to start new. I dinna believe you'll ever start doing stairs, as long as the burglar's there anyway, conjectured Mrs McPeever placidly. The heroic McPeever ignored the remark. I wish I kent the strength of the scoundrel's armament, he moaned. The futility of pyjamas, when revolver bullets are fleeing about, has been demonstrated in modern warfare again and again. I never fully realised the inestimable value of Herr Dow's bulletproof shirts afore. A bulletproof nichtshirt mon be a blessing beyond words. I wonder if I could extemporise anything of the kind. Mrs McPeever's patent squeeze-easy stays, steel-boned, double-hasped, super-flexible and hyper-elegant, caught McPeever's glittering eye, and he essayed to gird them round his manly form. A yawning gap of some fourteen inches, precisely over the most vulnerable spot in pugilism, looked bad for the usefulness of stays as armour. A fleeting glance in the wardrobe mirror showed that he also looked pretty bad from a purely artistic point of view. Never mind, Colin, cooed his wife soothingly. You're protected, while you'll be most exposed. Your back'll be turned to the enemy whenever the fechting begins. If ever. Perish the thought, Jean McPeever, quoth her husband, dashing the squeeze-easy outfit on the floor. And incidentally, perish the infernal stays. I've cut my thumb on their double-dod-gasted hasps. It's my belief I've severed an artery. It's my belief you're malingering, sympathised Mrs McPeever. Keep your everlastingly clacking tongue still, Jean Rattray, said McPeever sternly, addressing her by her maiden name. You'll fricht the marauder awa afore I can get at him. Then, in tones of cold-blooded ferocity, he concluded, The defending force will no advance. And no fourth time, commented the impetuous jingo lady quite tartly. The defending force advanced, putting its head boldly out of the door and paused for reasons of strategy. McPeever's worst fears, no, not fears, suspicions, were confirmed. A light showed distinctly from the kitchen door. Hitherto, he had fondly hoped it might have been the cat. McPeever recoiled in horror. Great dull marnock, he groaned. The kitchen gas is turned on full flare. Regardless of the rate per thousand feet, the blackguard. Get doon turn off this very minute, McPeever. And, so far as I can gather, which is nae further than that doorpost, the malefactor's gorging himself with the remains of that leathery steak pie you made yesterday week. I hear the dishes clattering. There's one consolation anyway. If he finishes it, 
I'll no hae to chew up in my spare time. And he'll probably dee a lingering death forby. If you linger there waiting till he dees, I'll gang doon myself, retorted his Amazonian spouse. What are you hankering there for noo? I'm evolving my strategy. Our great military leaders, fi Joshua to Oyama, he recognised that as the first principle of warfare. I would like to see some other principles, and maybe a bit of the warfare itself if you could work it in. MacPeaver's strategy, inclined to the Robertsian, a bloodless evacuation of the capital was what he wanted. It might be the best, but the difficulty lay in getting the burglar to understand it. And as Mrs MacPeaver was thirsting for action, on the part of MacPeaver, he was forced to sterner measures forthwith. Stepping out onto the landing, he hurled a soap dish with devastating effect in the direction of the chink of light in the kitchen doorway. He followed it up in quick succession with a cake of soap and two hairbrushes and unlimbered the tongs and fire shovel for a general engagement. Then the kitchen door opened wide and the figure of a man offered a splendid target for the bottle of hair wash that with unerring aim struck the wall in his vicinity. There it burst like a lidite shell, spreading its odiferous contents far and wide. Whatever are you playing at, Dad? marvelled the burglar at this stage of the conflict, and Mr MacPeaver then identified the Jimsy herein before alluded to. It transpired that Jimsy had missed his train, and with a dutiful desire to avoid disturbing his parents, had made free of the house as described. It's our that mither o' yours, Jeems, explained Father MacPeaver. She wouldna let me tak time to investigate. Nothing but immediate bloodshed would pacify her. It's arach, Jeemsy, supplemented Mother MacPeaver invidiously. Knew that you're in. I feel safe, which is more than I could say when your father was all I had to depend on. I can assure you, mother, that when dad was on the warpath, I scarcely felt safe myself. Which diplomatic pronouncement of James gratified both parties exceedingly. Caring for Others Working in her dream job teaching and caring for others, Patricia Sexton had no interest in retiring. Unfortunately, a recent health scare left her with little choice. After a spell in hospital, the 53-year-old from Kings Lynn in Norfolk found herself dreading simply sitting around at home with her feet up. That's why she decided to go along to her local branch of Friendship Society, the Odd Fellows. Since that first meeting more than three years ago, Patricia hasn't had to worry about being idle. In fact, from organising social events, running a seated exercise class, carrying out welfare visits to other members, and a host of other activities, she's never been busier. Lots of people can find the idea of retiring quite daunting. But remember, the Odd Fellows welcomes anyone looking to fill their days with a bit more fun and companionship. 
visit oddfellows.co.uk or call 0800 028 1810 today for a free information pack. Now, let me top up my tea, grab some of my friends, and we'll have that wee chat about the story you've just heard. The Burglar There by A.P. MacDonald, which was first published in The People's Friend in October 1906. That was very ably narrated by our very own Judy, um, who joins me now alongside uh, People's Friend editor Angela and Barry Sullivan from the DC Thompson Archives. Welcome, everyone. Hello. 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 So what did you think of the story? I, I think we'll start with you, Judy, as the narrator. You did such an able job. You're too kind. Um, how did you find it? I really enjoyed the story, actually. I like the the sort of Scottishness of it because that, that's something I'm quite keen on, you know, Scottish poetry and things like that. So that appealed to me and the humour appealed to me greatly as well. I thought, I think because the stories, you know, comparing them to the stories we have in the in the friend currently, the language was a lot. There was a lot more Scots than we would sort of use these days, and the language was a lot more formal. But uh, I think it still held up, and I think it's something we maybe wouldn't print in the current people's friend. But I definitely think it's something that the the readers will still enjoy. Do you think the characters were just a little too sarcastic for the current people's friend? No, I don't think so. I think it was really funny. It reminded me a little bit. I think the the closest thing we maybe have to it currently is the stories about the Italian couple, Tonino and Melina. They have a sort of similar kind of relationship. The Stefania Hartley stories? Yes, yes. Because that's all about an older long-time married couple and the, the sort of strifes of their their married life, which is always quite amusing as well. So I think it's very much on a sort of similar level. Angela, how do you feel about marital strife in The People's Friend? <laughs> <laughs> That's a bit of a loaded question, is it not? Um, I think that, you know, it's a really interesting um, comparison to make between 1906 and uh, present-day People's Friend stories. But I think Judy's right, the Molina... And Tonino's stories are quite similar in feel to the, the couple that are constantly bickering, just like in, in this story. Um, I guess it's not the marital strife that maybe would make it less likely to feature in People's Friend nowadays. It's possibly the fact that it's quite light on story. Um, so it's more of an anecdote than a story, um, as we would perhaps consider it today. And uh, also the use of Scots, because there is quite a lot of Scots in this story. Um, and I think we might steer away from that a little bit more nowadays because we would worry that it wouldn't be accessible to the wider People's Friend audience. But um, I thoroughly enjoyed the story. I enjoyed it when I read it on paper and it made me smile. But when I listened to jo- to Judy's recording of it, it made me laugh out loud because she really brought out the humour in it. I thought it was fantastic. Does it have more in common, do you think, with the, the farmer and his wife that's currently in the issues. Definitely. I think there are definitely comparisons there. I mean, that too is about a, a couple that that are close and obviously love each other, but niggle away all the time and complain about each other. So I think there's a lot of them, a lot of similarities there, definitely. And Barry, what uh, what do you think about how that 
story compares to what was being printed in the magazine at the time. So in 1906, uh, the, the sorts of stories that you'll find going back through the archive for that time. In some ways, very typical. Again, we're talking about the, the Scots element here, uh, the vernacular. And I'm interested in Angela's reaction to this today, saying it might alienate an element of the audience when you look at the sales figures for the people's friend as it was then, um, it, it sold far and wide and there was a lot of Scots vernacular. Um, it didn't seem to alienate anybody. I mean, there maybe maybe there's not an appetite for it so much, maybe, I don't know, but I, I, as a story, I thought it was hilarious. And I think the humour, I think the humour would come across uh, irrespective, maybe, maybe in today's uh, market, it may be tidied up a little, but I mean, it was still, a very funny story uh, and quite frankly I think it's the sort of thing that should be studied um, in writing courses and media classes the length and breadth it's a cracking me story Are you an advocate for the Scots language? Uh, yes I mean, why, why shouldn't we be? Why, why shouldn't um, we write the way we talk? Um, it, makes it, it makes something a little bit more real I mean this has been borne out by the fact that right from the very beginning People's Friend and a lot of other Lang titles, in fact, uh, have had a lot of vernacular in them. So dialect. Yeah, it's not dialect. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's not vernacular. It's no, dialect. No. Sorry. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> but, but Barry, I don't. I don't think it would alienate um, a modern reader. So I. I don't think that. You know, I'm not saying for a minute that there's anything wrong with speaking Scots because mm. I actually am a great advocate of Scots myself. But I do know that in the People's Friend in recent times where we use some Scots words, for example, Willie Shand, who writes a lot of features for us, is uh -huh. fond of his, his um, Scots turn of phrase. Um, we do get letters from readers from other parts of the world who just find it incomprehensible. They <laughs> really? Don't know what it means. Yeah, so it's oh. not that I don't think there's a place for Scots, and certainly we should be proud as Scots ourselves of our language, but um, I think because The People's Friend is read all over the world these days, mm. that it can be a barrier to some readers. But I do think as well that even within Scotland, the dialect isn't used nearly as much as it was back in those days. That's true. I think with, with access to sort of television and radio and all these things that they didn't have as much of back then, there the kids and even older people nowadays don't know what a lot of the words mean and they don't they, they don't hear it used and just even like my uncles and things spoke like that quite a lot and if i listen back to recordings that i have of them it's it really strikes me how much of the scots language that they used and it i didn't think anything about it at the time but you just don't hear it these days even other people in the office don't have a clue what you're talking about some of the time if you if you use older Scots words. Do you think there's a cringe element as well, Judy? Do you think there's maybe an element of that with a younger audience? Might just I, don't, I don't think so. It's just bafflement and confusion. <laughs> <laughs> I feel a bit like I'm putting it on. Sort of when I, when I was reading the story in my head, mm -hmm. uh, I, I felt I could, I could hear it. And in my head, it sounded completely authentic. And then I know as soon as it comes out of my mouth, it's going to sound ridiculous. Well, this is it because we're just not, we're not using, I mean, I do a lot of Scots verse speaking and as I say, my uncles and things did speak like that. So it's it's familiar to me, but 
you know, many people just haven't had the exposure to it and they, they genuinely just don't understand. When I'm teaching, um, I sort of teach speech and drama in my copious free time and I often try to get them to do Scots poetry and honestly, you would think it was completely another language. They don't have a clue and these are Scots children brought up here and you know we're just losing it so i do think it's a shame maybe the people's friend can spearhead the rebirth of the scots language that would be excellent (laughs) (laughs) so when we're on the subject of the scots language in this piece um what do we know about ap Macdonald? was he even scottish I haven't been able to find out anything about A.P. Macdonald. And when Ah. I knew we were going to be talking about this story, I did try and do a bit of digging. And Ah. there there is nothing that I have been able to find. But I did wonder, because, Ian, am I right in thinking the McPeever Wrangles was a long-running series that was also printed as a book at one point um, by John Lang? That's Um, right, yes. yes. I I did wonder if A.P. Macdonald might have been a staff member. Well, I'm not so sure. Um, I was able to a little bit about him. Ah. Um, ah. And I'll, I shall tell you a little bit about, well, him. Uh, I'll tell you about his literary superstar fan as well later on in the, uh, the podcast. Um, <laughs> yeah, so uh, I'm not going to, yeah, stay tuned. Uh, so I went digging because this is the nature of what I do. And A.P. MacDonald appears to have been a George Andrew Home from Barking. Oh. Yeah, so I'm not entirely sure. I mean, there's very little. I wasn't able to find much more about him other than a couple of snippets in our British in the British newspaper archive. But yes, yeah, so there seems to have been a chap called George Andrew Home, and I haven't any actual proof of this. I have a hypothesis about how he came up with his pseudonym. Um, in 1904, there is an article about... George Andrew Home, whose brother-in-law to be uh, a James MacDonald, died suddenly a matter of months before he was betrothed to um, I don't know if it was Home's sister or sister-in-law. And very soon after, it seems this chap taken up writing and has adopted a pseudonym of MacDonald. So uh-huh. I'm thinking it's maybe a bit of a tribute to this the brother-in-law who never was. Wow. Oh. Yeah, so there's uh, some interesting stuff going on back then. I mean, it's, it's strange. I mean, for a guy who seems to have been very prolific, his books were published. He had several uh, ongoing series by the looks of them, um, including a couple in The People's Friend. Um, I can't find much else about him. He seems to have been completely forgotten today, unfortunately. Oh. But then, you know, that's nothing new when we come to um, the People's Friends archives, you know, these amazing writers who've just, just drifted out of public consciousness. Mm-hmm. It's a real shame. I suppose that's part of why um, we had decided to do what is currently the fiction newsletter where we're sharing these stories from the archive, but also this podcast, because mm-hmm. it gives us the chance to go back to these authors that were obviously um, very popular uh, and and very uh, prolific, as you say, were, were published a lot in The People's Friend and bring them back to people's notice. Yeah, I mean, it's, there's a rich, rich heritage of the Peach Friend. I mean, it sounds, from what I've read, I have the, the 1906 bound file in front of me right now, but um, from what I've read of this, it sounds like he was a find of the People's Friend. It sounds like he, that's where he first appeared and then built his career from there, which is, again, 
not un, not uncommon with uh, the people's friend of old, and probably to this day, I suspect. Wow. And was he a Scots man living down south, or do we not know that? That, that I don't know. I'd have to go do some real serious digging to find yeah. that out, to be honest with you, Judy. I'm not sure. Um, it could well be. Um, but, you know, sometimes the best satire is done from out with, you know, sort of, I'm always mindful of the fact that, you know, it, there was a, an Englishman who drew the Bruins and Ur Wally, uh, and he did, you know, did all that justice. Uh-huh. So, I, I don't know, it's, it's entirely possible that he, he adopted yeah, this. I'm, but I'm just wondering if he was indeed English, how much subbing was done of the dialect then when it was in the office. Oh, speaking is because that that being that being my job, you know, you wonder if the if the because the Scots is very authentic. There's no way, unless an an English person had lived among it and was familiar with it. It's an interesting one. I don't think they could have got it to that level. Yeah, so you just wonder if he had written the stories and the language had been almost translated, if you like, once it got to the office, or if he did indeed have that grasp of the of the dialect. Quite possible. I mean he's like I say, this this uh, McDonald character was a he was actually a minister, this this chap who died. Oh. And it could just be that he had an ear for this. Maybe yeah, could, could be. was Scottish. Mm-hmm. It just picked this up. It'd be an interesting one to look into yeah. actually. Um we just I didn't unfortunately have time this week with things the way they are. But uh, yeah I'd love to know a little bit more mm-hmm. about George Andrew because I think he deserves like so many of these the writers that have cropped up over the last year or so, uh, deserves a bit of recognition and deserves a bit of um, praise. I agree. A bit of a revival. I enjoyed it. It was fun. As Angela was saying, it it is part of a long-running series and mm. uh, not to put too many spoilers in here, but you'll definitely be popping up again later on. <laughs> oh, really? Um, there are, There's uh, one about going to a football match um, from what I remember and one about being inducted into the Masons. Oh, excellent. <laughs> well, I mean, I could tell you something about, um, I mean, he was obviously a very popular, popular writer. Um, I don't have any sort of definite facts and figures regarding readership or, or sales of his books, which unfortunately, even though they were lying publish, uh, publications, we don't seem to have, which is a, a real shame. But uh, from all the research we did uh, for the 150th, there are a couple of contextual clues you can get about the popularity of readers. One of those is if you go to the last um, the last issue or the penultimate issue of any year, they'll do like a trail, like a trailer for what's coming up. So in the last issue of 1906, they'll do a little trailer about what's coming up in 1907. And if you're mentioned in this trailer, you know you're a big name. And it does say that in 1907, Mr. and Mrs. McPeever will appear from time to time. So clearly it wasn't an an every week kind of thing. It's just as and when. But I noticed as well that he also had a a piece in the Christmas number for that year. And again, you don't get into the People's Friend Christmas number unless you are bona fide sellable because that's that's the showcase for the year, basically. So he was obviously he's obviously made a name for himself in yeah. quite a short space of time. That's really interesting, and he, I mean I can see why. I think he definitely gets points for using the words burglarious. Oh, I yes. know. <laughs> that that was the one one that I wrote down as well. Bur- burglarious, I can't even say it. Burglarious <laughs> noises. 
It's fantastic. I know. What else was quite interesting was there were a couple of biblical references, mm-hmm. which were kind of, you know, you probably wouldn't see popping up in a contemporary story unless it was, you know, about a minister or something like that. They were used to good effect, weren't they? There was the line about um, he was like David selecting yes. stones. <laughs> so talking about um, our favourite bits of this story, there's a line um, really near the start where uh, McPeaver, Colin McPeaver, is pretending to be asleep uh, when the burglarious noises are ongoing. <laughs> um, and Mrs McPeaver says... Uh, and you'll forgive me, uh, having just spoken about how inauthentic this is going to sound. Um, she says, preserve us, ah, he's fair sunk into a comma, she groaned distractedly. And by way of putting a period to this state of suspended animation, she seized him by his luxuriant hair and massive forearm and simply made a human roly-poly of him. <laughs> and my, my favourite bit about that line, or those lines, is it says, he's fair sunk into a comma, and then about 15 words later it says... Uh, and by way of putting a period to yeah. the state of suspended animation, yeah. which struck yeah. me as being a grammar joke. <laughs> yes, well, I I tried to I tried to point that when I was reading it because I I took a, a very slight pause after period just to let it sink in. So with that kind of uh, dedication to grammatical uh, <laughs> gags, <laughs> is is making me think about the kind of work that a sub would have done then, mm. so a, a sub-editor or a production editor, Judy, in your case, yeah. uh, would have done then versus the job that they do now. I know. Um, it's it's There's just no way of telling because when you see a finished article, I mean, a lot of... We, ha- we have some writers currently who are absolutely fantastic. They write absolutely wonderful stories, but they require a lot of tighten, sort of tidying up. <laughs> is that fair? Is that a fair thing to say? But um, others, you basically don't have to touch them. But some people have a great gift of storytelling, but putting it down on paper, you know, there are maybe spelling mistakes or they're not so good with the the punctuation and things like that. But it's well worth the sub's time just to to put it into people's friend format because the stories are, are just wonderful when they when they're they're finished with. So you've just no way of knowing how much work the subs had to do to get it onto the page in the in the format that you see in the paper. It is quite interesting to think about the differences though, isn't it, between the contributor sending in this story in 1906 mm. and a contributor sending in a story today in 2020. So um, you know, today it will be it'll be typed on a computer and emailed in, and it will arrive instantly. And if we want um, the writer to make any revisions or corrections or to try rewriting something, that process can be done really quickly. Whereas back in in 1906, um, you know, it would have been a much more laborious process, wouldn't it? Everything would have come through the post. Um, presumably, the the stories would have been handwritten. Yes, it would have been much harder for the author to make changes once it had been submitted. So I wonder, did that mean that they they took more care over it in the first instance or did the subs in the office work harder to to turn it into something that could be published? It's quite an interesting situation to think yourself back to, isn't it? Because now we take instant communication and instant alteration and revision for granted, but, but they wouldn't have had that luxury, which might have been 
a pro in some cases and a con in others. Definitely. So it's fascinating to think about them. It really is, because even when we started work, Angela... Um, that was just a few few years ago. Judy, just just a few years ago, <laughs> the everything was printed out by, like, everything was laid out on actual boards. Yes. And, and type and had stuck, to be sent The type was stuck sent, down. Yeah. yeah, and the type, you know, you if you... Once something was on the page, you you really didn't want to have to be making any alterations to it because it was such a long process to get it reset and stuck down again and cut out with a scalpel. Whereas now it's just in front of you on on a screen and you can change anything you like yeah. in a matter of seconds. So does that mean that does that make it more likely or less likely for you to make changes in terms of if it's on a computer screen? Or if it was back in the day when it was all, uh, I don't know, written in stone, chiselled. I think the changes would have taken place before it reached the page, yeah. Because everything was that there was there was a longer process to reach that stage before we've cut a lot of things out because mm-hmm. we're able now just to change things once it's laid out. Whereas before we were trying to avoid that, so we had more stages prior to. Yeah. actually seeing the finished page, which I'm sure they will have done. But I think it's undoubtedly true that um, in the pre-computer age, you were counselled to think very long and hard before you made any change at all, because it did involve a lot of time and a lot of effort and sometimes a lot of expense too. Whereas I think maybe nowadays it is too simple mm-hmm. just to make a change on a whim. Um, whereas I think it was quite good discipline that you had to to really consider what you were going to change and why um, in the past. so Which we don't do, of course, changes on a whim. We don't do changes on a whim, no. no. <laughs> we absolutely <laughs> don't. All our changes are carefully considered. <laughs> I'd love to know what the hand of the editor was in this, because even moving away from the Scots dialect stuff, the first read of this, my first impression was this, this was a complete article. I mean, there was no fat on this at all. Mm-hmm. No, it was Every very good. The sentence was chosen carefully, as you, as you just pointed out, with the grammar joke. This man has taken like poetic like care over every word. It's all either to drive the narrative or to add to the humour. Mm-hmm. There's nothing in there that is paired so far back. It's I, I think it's amazing. Yeah. And not for nothing did I my my mental imagery when I was reading this went straight to an old silent film. Um, because there was a, I don't know if you're aware of this, but R.W. Paul, a very prolific filmmaker around this period, had made this thing called Come Along Do, again about this sort of um, argumentative married couple. And they were the first thing I thought of, and I started thinking, wow, this this could actually be a screenplay in some ways. This would be so easy to just turn into a silent film. Um, So I think there's a lot going on here. I'd love to know about not just the writer, but yeah, the, the subbing afterwards, because mm. it just seems like it, it was paired right down to the bone in a very impressive way. But I, I thought when, um, you know, I've already said that when I read it, I, I smiled, but when I heard Judy reading it aloud, I laughed. Um, and it really brought home to me that back in the early days of The People's Friend, it was a magazine for being read aloud to the family around the fire. And I think yeah. this kind of story really plays into that, doesn't it? That you can imagine the family sitting around and, and having lots of fun in a, an era when there was no TV, there was no radio, there was not that much more entertainment other than the entertainment you made yourselves. And I think they would have had a lot of fun as a family with, with this kind of story. It sounded like Judy enjoyed doing the performance, actually. It, it did. Sounded, 
is something that was designed to be performed. That was my impression of this. Yes, piece. yes, definitely. And it was a lot of fun. And I think it's it's almost it would be almost like a sitcom of its time then, if it was appearing regularly in the the magazine. And it was being read. It was a Jordan Mildred. Yes. <laughs> or, or one foot in the grave. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you know what's funny is if you go on further in, um, further on, um, once it's had a couple of stories in The People's Friend, it then starts to get this banner in which they, they have depictions of the McPeevers. And they don't look anything like I imagined them at all. <laughs> so I don't know if that's something Ian, you might want to pick up on, maybe add to the to the podcast or whatever later on, but it's, it's really odd to see these depictions of people I don't think are, mm. are the McPeevers. I don't know who these strangers are. Well, and I wonder are. how the readers thought, I wonder what the readers thought of those illustrations, because I know yeah. when um, when we changed the artwork for the Farman oh. and his wife series a few years ago, um, there was a huge amount of um, correspondence from readers that immediately got in touch to say they don't look like they did in the old illustrations and they don't look like how we imagined them and John wouldn't be that fat and Anne wouldn't look like that. (laughs) Readers really take these characters who are fictional characters to their hearts and and they care deeply about them and goodness me that went on for quite a long time. It certainly did. I remember it well. (laughs) I wonder if the McPeevers were the, the John and Anne Taylor of their day. I wonder. I didn't actually realise that kind of later on they get their own illustrations because in in the fiction newsletter where this made its modern debut, um, they're accompanied by illustrations uh, by Manor, our illustrations ed. And um, Ah. so so she has interpreted how they look and it would actually be an interesting exercise to look at yeah, yeah compare and compare, especially we'll, since I'll she's I'll send them on to you, and that's what I'll do. I'll send, the, send these images on. Um, Brilliant. For you guys, I think, um, in terms of wrapping up, but I, I, I wonder if I could just read a, a letter that, uh, an article that came into, I think it was one of the Essex Chronicle about AP McDonald, um, just about his superstar fan. Oh yeah. Carry on. Okay, so this is from 1907. This is after the book has been published. It reads. Mr. George Andrew Holm of Barking has received the following holograph letter from Mark Twain about his McPeever's wrangles. And <laughs> no Dear Mr. MacDonald, I have found time, by stealing it from sleep, to umpire the first four squabbles and find them fine, both in spirit and in workmanship, and just to my taste. Sincerely, your S.L. Clemens. I oh, mean, you don't oh get my God. Fantastic. <laughs> Mark Twain. Come on. I was wondering how we were going to end this week, and I think you've probably just done it there. Um, So thanks to Angela and Barry for joining us. Thanks to Judy for that wonderful reading. And thank you for joining us too. That's us for this week. And until this wee group of friends gets together again for another story, from the friend to you, cheerio. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Reading Between the Lines. Subscribe in your podcast app today so you don't miss our next story and check our previous episodes for more from the Friend Archives. We'd be delighted if you were to recommend this podcast to your friends. If you don't already get The People's Friend, because you listen to Reading Between the Lines, you can now get your first 13 issues for just £8. And that special offer is available until the 31st of May 2021. Check the episode notes for details and terms. And for more from The People's Friend, Visit thepeoplesfriend.co.uk or find us on Facebook and Twitter. Haste you back.
There's a dainty little journal that has read both far and near. It has had a host of rivals, still it stands without a peer. It is bright and entertaining from the first page to the end, and is known to its admirers as the dear old people's friend. A charming little journal is the friend. Of good things it is such a happy blend. That to read it at your leisure is a pleasure without measure. The friend to friends in trouble recommend. They won't be happy till they get the friend. <laughs>